I want to begin this morning with a story. See if this sounds familiar to you. Boy meets girl and is immediately drawn to her and her to him. I mean, they hit it off right off the bat. And as stronger feelings begin to develop, they begin to date. And as they get to know one another more and more, they find out that they have a lot of the, the same interests and similar goals in life. Well, as their relationship grows, they get to the point where they are spending every waking second together. And a year after dating, the boy boldly proposes to the girl. She says yes. She then begins to spend most of her time making plans for the wedding. After several months, maybe even a year of, of planning, the wedding day finally arrives, and it's like something out of a magazine. During the ceremony, as the, the beautiful bride walks down the, the aisle and is met by the, the young man of her dreams, people in the crowd begin to make comments to one another about how perfect the two seem for one another. They begin to talk about how in love both of them seem to be. Well, after the wedding, these two lovebirds then leave for a week on a lavish honeymoon to the Caribbean. After an incredible week on the beach, they return to their first apartment and settle into their new life together. Sounds pretty good so far, right? But as it does for many, the honeymoon wears off pretty quickly. After a few short months of being together, the couple begins to have issues. For example, little things about her begin to annoy him, and she also begins to get upset with him because he doesn't listen to her and talk to her like he used to when they were dating. So she begins to share all her problems with anyone who will listen, including mom and dad and her friend from work who's divorced who has nothing positive to say about any guy. And he begins to go out with his friends, most of whom are single, who encourage him to move on and re-embrace the single life. Well, a few years go by like this, and this guy and this girl, who were at one time inseparable, now can't even stand to be in the same room with one another. One evening, during a heated argument, she tells him that she's had enough, and he agrees, and the two separate, and they eventually divorce. Now, be honest. Though the details may vary a bit, we all know names of individuals that we can place in this story, don't we? We know names of, of couples with, with similar stories, right? Truth is, this story is, is not all that uncommon, is it? So we discussed last week, divorce rates are, are through the roof in our world today. In 2008... Christian research specialists from the Barna Group reported that among those who have said their wedding vows, one out of three have been divorced at least once. And they also reported that 
because divorce is on the rise in our society, we as a whole have grown more and more comfortable with it. One of the researchers said most Americans view divorce just as a natural part of life. It's just a part of life. Just like you get cavities on occasion, at times you get a divorce. No big deal. One researcher said there no longer seems to be uh, that much of a stigma attached to divorce. It's now just seen as an unavoidable right of passage. They also reported that, that serial marriage is on the rise today. And, and this is when a, a person purposefully marries two or three times in life, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. Like I explained earlier, many of us who, who do value marriage and see it as a lifelong commitment, we see these, these stats and we watch these trends unfold and we begin to develop this, this fatalistic view of our world. I've heard people say things like, things have gotten so bad in our society today, we are just beyond all hope. People think things today are as bad as they've ever been and think we are beyond the point of return. Well... If you've sat through more than a few of these sermons from this series through the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that's not the case, right? Corinth in the first century was as godless and as immoral a society as any our world has ever known. They were as corrupt, arrogant, prideful, perverse, materialistic, and sexually immoral as any. I mean, we could talk all morning about how messed up this city was. Like I said last week, when thinking about how bad our society is, just take whatever you think is bad in our society and multiply it by about 20 and you'll have Corinth. But did Paul see their situation as hopeless? No. Remember in one of the first sermons from this series, we discussed the fact that though the situation was bad, Paul does not quit on this church. But he came to her aid. And this book is all about the advice he gives to this struggling congregation to help them get back on track and get busy and living for God. And one topic Paul chooses to tackle in chapter 7 is the topic of marriage. Because in, in, in Corinth, relationships were rocky. I mean, we think marriage is attack, under attack in our world today. The sanctity of marriage was being dismantled in the first century in Corinth. Many had been married 30 times or more. They could count their, their wives by their number of years that they had been alive. They didn't think twice about it. And there were few, if any, Corinthians who, who thought of marriage as a lifelong commitment. They had the mentality that if the going gets tough, we can just get going and go our separate ways, and many of them did. And again, this mentality made its way into the church. Many of the Christians at Corinth were not honoring their marital vows because they just didn't believe it to be important. And like we said last week, we, we see similar trends in our world today and in our churches today, don't we? Many believers have been influenced by this view of marriage in our world. And if this is your mentality, that marriage is not that serious of a commitment and, and that you, if you want out, whenever you want out, you can just get out. Paul, again, like last week, is going to rain on your parade once again this morning. 
he clearly shows us in this passage we're going to look at that marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. It is. When we make a vow before God to our spouse, we are to honor that vow. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5.4, When you vow a vow to God, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Solomon's point in this passage is that the vows we make before God, they are serious. It's a serious matter. God takes the commitments that, that you and me make before Him and to Him seriously. And, and when we fail to keep those vows we make, God holds you and me accountable in a big way. Therefore, we need to make sure that we keep the commitments we make because if not, we will answer for that. Now, let me say this before we begin. I know that there are several who are here this morning who have been divorced at some time or another in life, and, and there were some in, in Paul's audience who had as well. Let me comfort you with this this morning. Though Scripture is clear how God feels about divorce, listen, there is forgiveness in Him and life with Him afterwards. There is. I know of many who have been divorced for, for, for all kinds of reasons, some of them unbiblical reasons in Scripture, and they have found mercy and forgiveness in God and have gone on to live fruitful lives for Him. So if you have been divorced and you're here this morning, don't be defeated by this message, okay? But I do want you, from this point forward, to have this perspective given by Paul in this text, the perspective that says that marriage is for life. In our passage today, Paul gives us a great word on this. Like I said last week, the great thing about 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul speaks to all of us in this chapter. He does. Whether you're single or married, divorced or widowed, in a relationship, out of a relationship, whatever situation you find yourself in, Paul has a word for you here in this chapter. And in verses 10 through 24, Paul is primarily speaking to married folks. And, and not just one specific type of married couple, but he speaks to every kind of marital relationship that a believer could possibly be faced with. First, he speaks to married believers, to Christians who have committed to marry one another. And then he speaks to a believer who is married to a satisfied unbeliever. And then he speaks, lastly, to believers married to unsatisfied believers wanting out of the marriage. So what we're going to do for the rest of our time here is we are going to discuss what Paul has to say to each of these three groups about marital commitment. First, Paul speaks to married believers. And his message to them is this. Do not divorce, but be united in Christ. Do not divorce, but be united in Christ. Look at verses 10 through 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Here Paul is, is speaking to married believers who are not getting along. And this verse tells us something right off the bat, doesn't it? It tells us that just being a Christian, just because you're a Christian, doesn't mean you're not going to have any problems, right? Yeah. 
had people look at me who are having marital problems who tell me, I wish I could just have the perfect marriage like you do. I'll look around. Huh? Who, me? You talking to me? Believe me, we have struggles. We do. All Christian couples do. Now, now we have a leg up, don't we? Because we have God's Word to look to when making improvements in our life and in our marriage. But, but at times, we have difficulties. Christians have problems like everybody else. And listen, believers, we do more harm than good when we're not honest about our struggles. You know why? Because struggling couples... Look at your seemingly perfect relationship and they see their own as being helpless and hopeless. Wives look to other husbands and make unfair comparisons and so do wives to and so do husbands to other wives. So it's it's important that that we be honest about our our struggles in marriage, but it's also important for us to come alongside couples that are struggling and, and, and encourage them to seek out biblical counsel and to respond biblically when problems occur. So Paul here, he addresses the fact that, that Christian couples do at times have issues and sometimes they get so bad that one or the other or both consider divorce. In response, Paul gives some very specific instructions for believers who are considering divorce. And he takes these instructions directly from the mouth of the Lord. He says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And the reason why Paul quotes Jesus here is because Jesus has already clearly addressed this issue during his earthly ministry, so there's no need for another word on the matter. First he says, the wife should not separate from her husband. Let's stop there for a minute. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The wife is not to leave her husband. Now, the, the word translated leave or separate is the same Greek word used by Jesus in Matthew 10, 9 when he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Same word. Same word. Same word used both times and in both instances here, in both verses, it's used in reference to divorce. So the wife is not to divorce her husband. Pretty clear, right? Look down at the end of verse 11. Paul also says the husband should not divorce his wife. Again, pretty clear. Now, some of you are probably jumping up and down on the inside right now thinking in this passage as you read, but there's an exception though, you see it? There's an exception. We love exceptions, don't we? We do. More importantly, we love to be the exception. I remember when I was in grade school, I thought the coolest thing in the world was to have a hall pass. Because back in those days, it's probably the same as it is today, you were not to be in the halls during class unless you had a hall pass. And at times I would kind of keep it hidden, you know, in hopes that somebody would call me out so I could flash that badge to them and say, I'm the exception, I've got a pass. But you know what? You know what I found? Even though technically it wasn't wrong for me to be in the hall because I had a pass, oftentimes I abused that privilege. And even though I was not breaking the rules by being in the hall with the pass, the best place for me to be at that moment was back in the classroom. Though at times divorce is unavoidable, Though there are exceptions in Scripture, most people just view divorce as, as an easy way out. 
And most Christians just, just align their circumstances with these biblical exceptions so that they can get out. What we need to be doing instead of searching the Scriptures for loopholes and exceptions, what we need to be asking ourselves is this, what response will give God the most glory? Well, that changes things a bit, doesn't it? Let me also say this. If you're looking for exceptions for divorce, you need to put down the Bible concordance, okay? Put it down, and you need to, you need to seek out solid biblical counsel to talk through these issues so that you can get down to the heart of the matter and seek, if at all possible, reconciliation. Let me also say this. Though there are exceptions in the Scriptures, this verse right here is not one of those exceptions. The reason why Paul followed up by saying, but if she does, if she divorces, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The reason why Paul says this here is simply because he is speaking to some believers who have already divorced one another. So he's giving them a word of, of guidance as well. He basically is saying here, you are not to divorce, but if you have, here's where you go from here. You either remain single or you be reconciled to your spouse. Now, I know what some of you are already thinking. What about in the case of adultery? Is Paul contradicting himself here about what, what, what it says elsewhere in Scripture? No, and I'll tell you why. In this verse, I don't think Paul has adultery in mind. There are a few reasons why I believe this. Number one is because Paul never indicates in verses 10 through 11 that the Christians have a valid reason for divorce. Their reasons are not justifiable scripturally. If they were, I believe Paul would have made mention of that. Now, many of you know in other parts of the Scripture that divorce is allowed among Christians when adultery has occurred. If a Christian commits an adulterous act, God does consider that marriage bond to be broken because the sexual act is considered a deeply spiritual act like we talked about a while ago. So when one commits this act outside of marriage, they have entered into a spiritual union with someone else and God considers that grounds for divorce. Now that's not saying that that's, that's what he wants for you is to get a divorce and not saying that you should when this happened. A lot of times I encourage, even when this has happened, for reconciliation to, to occur, and that's what, I, that's what I strive for. But in this situation, there doesn't seem to be any justifiable reason for divorce, which indicates to me that, that adultery is not taking place within Corinth here, within the church. So if not adultery, what is the main reason for the Christians at Corinth wanting a divorce? Well, remember I told you last week about one of the reasons. There were some who were married who divorced because they thought being single to be more spiritual. They viewed being married and being active sexually with their spouse as being wrong, and they believed that to be a super spiritual person, they had to leave their spouse and be single and solely devoted to the Lord. Now this may or may not have been the only reason why the divorces took place here in the church, but, but we do know this is one of, their, one of their main problems. And Paul tells them in this verse that for these reasons, divorce is wrong. 
You are not justified by that reasoning. And if Paul were to witness some of the, the divorces that are taking place today among believers in our world today in the church, he would say the exact same thing. He would tell some who are getting divorced because they can't get along or because they just want to be single or because they don't have feelings for their spouse anymore. Paul would say, not valid. That's not valid scripturally. He would tell believers, husband and wife, stay put because marriage is for life. It's for life. Some of you are still thinking, well, why? Why can't I just move on? What's the big deal? Well, one, you've made a vow before God. And we've already talked about how serious that is, right? That you keep what you vow. But another reason why is because both of you are believers. And you're indwelt with the very Spirit of God. Therefore, you have all you need to make your relationship work. I would encourage you this morning, if you or your spouse, one or the other or both are a step or two away from cutting out and parting ways, I encourage you, seek out biblical counsel. Because as believers, you have all that you need to turn your relationship around and honor God in your lives and in your marriage. Let me also say this. Don't wait till you pass the point of return either. Seek out advice early and often. So don't divorce but be united in Christ. Now, there are probably some thinking, well, that's great for, for couples who are married to believers, but what about me and others who are married to non-believers? Though I've been saved, my spouse is not. Surely God doesn't want me to stay in that relationship. Well, let's take a look at Paul's message to believers. First, he talks to believers married to satisfied unbelievers. And this is what Paul says to them. Do not divorce for the sake of your spouse and the kids. That's Paul's message here. Look at verses 12 through 14. Paul says, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if a brother, any brother, has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, now many think we can just chunk this section all together because Paul is giving his own uninspired thoughts here when he says, I, not the Lord. Some people think Paul is not speaking God-inspired words here, but is just sort of shooting from the hip saying, hey, this is... This is just me talking. This is just my take on it. That's a misinterpretation. This is where context comes in. Paul's words here are inspired and they are biblical. You know why? Because they're in the Bible. And we're told in Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. All means all. So with that in mind, what does Paul mean here when he says, I say, I, not the Lord? He's simply making the point he's no longer quoting Jesus. Remember in the previous passage, he was quoting the Lord. He was giving the Lord's words on it. He said, Jesus has already spoke on this matter. There's no need for any more to, to be said. Jesus has spoke on it. But here, Paul is saying, now I'm giving my own God-inspired words here. He's saying, I'm no longer quoting Jesus, but I'm giving my own words inspired by the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's saying. Here's what he has to say. He, he basically says that if, 
an unbelieving spouse decides to stay after their partner becomes a Christian, the, the, the believer is to stay in the marriage. Now, many had an issue with this because they believe, won't my spiritual life be in jeopardy by remaining in this type of marriage? You know what? Paul shows the opposite is true. Look at verse 14 again. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So, the believing spouse is not contaminated by this type of relationship, but instead, the unbelieving spouse and the children are holy or made holy or sanctified. Now, let me say this. This is short of salvation, okay? We'll talk more on this in just, just a moment. But what Paul says here, his point is, if you stay in as a believer, your, your unbelieving spouse and your kids are blessed because of your presence in the home. That's what Paul's saying. Times I'll hear people say, you know, I'm the only one in my household who's a Christian. And they'll speak of it in sort of a negative way. And I often try to, to explain to them that unbelievers in their family, in their household, though they may not realize it, they greatly benefit from your presence as a believer. Like Paul shows us here, one Christian in the home makes a huge difference. According to what Paul says here, one husband or one wife makes, a, a one believer makes a home a Christian home. One Christian. Everybody else in the house benefits from one Christian who is sold out and living for God. Now when Paul says sanctified and holy, again, he's not saying the husband and wife and all the kids will automatically become Christians because of your presence in the home. Now they may, but that's not a guarantee that Paul's giving here. What he is saying is, is that a, a, when a husband or a wife is a believer, that house is set apart. That family is is set apart. That marriage is set apart by God. That, that family becomes a recipient of the blessings of God. Now again, the blessings are short of salvation, but it can lead to salvation. But even if it doesn't, this makes the home far superior to that of living in a completely pagan home. That's what Paul's saying. Heard a story recently about a family with one Christian in the entire household of seven, and it was Grandma. And this Grandma loved Jesus, and she talked about Jesus night and day. And it got to the point where everybody was sick of Grandma talking about Jesus. They were, they were ready for Grandma just to cool it with all the Jesus talk. But you know what happened? This grandmother's daughter and three of the four grandchildren gave their lives to the Lord. And now they all praise the Lord for the godly influence of Grandma. See the kind of grace that can extend through one individual who is sold out for the Lord. Now again, it may not result in salvation, but it may. You may be in a home where you are the only Christian. My advice for you is this. Stay in where you are and know that your presence in the home makes that home a Christian home. Now, I would encourage you beyond that to plug in to a church family as well. But know that your presence 
as a believer makes a difference in that household. Paul makes an even greater application of this in verses 17 through 24. Now, I'm not going to read this entire passage for the sake of time. You can go back to it later on, and and many of you probably read it this last week. But in this passage, Paul is simply calling for believers in general to continue to live out their new life in Christ in their existing context. He says, Were you already circumcised when you were called? then remain circumcised. Now, some of you are probably wondering, how do you undo that? But Paul's speaking figuratively here, okay? He's, he's talking about, he's talking to Jewish believers. And, and he says, don't abandon your Jewish heritage now that you're a Christian, but be a Jew for Jesus so that other non-believing Jews can benefit from your Christian witness. He then says, were you a non-Jewish person when you were saved? He says then, don't, don't become more Jewish and think you have to to be more of a Christian. Instead, be a non-Jew for Jesus so that other non-believing Gentiles can, can benefit from your Christian witness. He says, were you a slave when God called you? They had slaves in those days. Paul says, you are free in Christ. So live out your freedom in Christ as a bondservant so that other non-believing bondservants can benefit from your Christian witness. Now he says, if you have a chance of freedom, go for it. Paul's not pro-slavery here. He's just making the point that you can faithfully live for Jesus and make an impact for him in whatever context you were saved in. So the main point Paul's making in verses 12 through 14 and in verses 17 through 24 is that believers are to remain in and live for God in the position they were called. He says, you're not to cut out on, but be a representative for God in your current context. And once again, this is especially true when it comes to having, having children in the home. This is especially true when it comes to marriage. When you have an unbelieving but committed spouse and unbelieving children, you are to stay and represent Christ every opportunity you get and know that your presence sets your family apart for God and know that your commitment to Christ results in your family being recipients of the blessings of God and know that it could even lead to salvation in your home remain married to satisfied unbelievers for their sake and for the sake of the kids there's a third and final group Paul addresses in this passage and it is believers who are married to dissatisfied unbelievers wanting out. Paul's message to them is this. They want out? Let them go because God has called you to peace. Look at verses 15 through 16. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? So this is the third group. Those married to unbelievers wanting out. Maybe some of you know of a Christian brother or sister in this predicament. Maybe this is where you are. Paul says, if he or she leaves, let them go. 
Look at verse 15. He says, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved in bondage. Now, that being in bondage there or enslaved, it refers to the bonds of marriage. So the old ball and chain is biblical. All right? You can use that. It refers to the bonds of marriage. Here we have another exception to divorce that Paul gives here. He says when an unbeliever leaves a believer, the believer is released by God from the bonds of marriage. That's what it means there when it talks about that bonds being broken. At times, this happens. A believer will come to Christ and the unbelieving spouse is not having it and they're on their way out. I actually knew of a Christian missionary who grew up, grew up a Jehovah's Witness and he came to faith later in life, and his wife, who was also a devout Jehovah's Witness, wasn't having it. She left, and he let her go, and according to Paul here, he was okay to do so, and he went on to be a fruitful missionary in Brazil. Now, some will say, well, I want to fight for them to stay so I can be a witness to him or her so that they will be saved. Well, Paul addresses this response as well. Look at what he says. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Tells those with this mentality that there is no guarantee that their spouse will be saved by them fighting for them to stay. And, and if they're on their way out and their mind is made up, you fighting for them to stay, it may destroy the peace that God calls you to have in the home. Now, I don't believe Paul is saying we should not put forth any effort. I do. I believe that we should and seek out counseling if the other is willing, but if their mind is made up and fighting for them is going to turn the home into a hostile, tension-filled, angry, and quarrelsome environment, Paul says, let them go, give them over to God, trusting that salvation is ultimately a work of His hands. So if they leave, remember, God has called you to peace and let them go. Maybe you're here this morning. You can honestly say that you fit into none of these three groups mentioned. Because you're not a follower of Christ, nor have you ever been married to one who is. Maybe you don't get all this positive talk about marriage and about how it's a, a gift from God. And, and maybe you don't see the benefits of, of committing to someone for a lifetime. And the reason why is because... You've seen marriage at its worst. Maybe you've had a husband or wife leave, though they made a vow to be by your side for better or for worse, no matter what. Though you've moved on, you're still bitter to, to this very day because of their failure to keep the vows that they made to you. Maybe growing up, you had a father or a mother who failed to keep the vow he or she made and failed in their commitment as a parent, and the pain you experienced as a child is still experienced and still felt to this very day. I have an encouraging word for you this morning as we close. Though human relationships are, are flawed, there is one relationship that is truly flawless. Though your ex-husband, ex-wife, father and mother or mother let you down and, and failed to be the husband, wife, father or mother they promised to be. Listen, there is one who is faithful in every way. There is one who is true to his word and who keeps his word regardless. 
Though at times those who, who promise to love you and cherish you leave you, there is one who loves unconditionally and who promises never to leave nor forsake us. The person I'm talking about is the Lord God. He has created both you and me for this kind of relationship. And He tells us in His Word that if we will turn from our sin and trust in the person and work of His Son, we will be forgiven of sin and made right with Him and get to experience the flawless and faithful and unconditional and eternal relationship with Him. If you're here this morning and are severely bitter and deeply scarred due to failed human relationships, I invite you this morning to turn from your life of bitterness and pain and misery and give your life to the Lord. Believe me when I say it's the one relationship you will never, ever regret committing yourself to. Would you pray with me?